0: Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Welcome back. Thank you for listening today. Um, this weekend is the Jewish holiday Passover, and I spoke with best selling author and also screenplay writer Leslie K. Berry. So I thought that this would be a good week to share this story with you guys because it's about the Jews in America on the cusp of the Holocaust when um, I really, I didn't know very much about this part of US history, but there was a shadow party in the US called the German American Bund and it was led by a Fuhrer in America Um, And so the Nazi party was actually taking hold in America. And I'm not going to belabor the story much because Leslie Berry talks about it in our interview. And I think that she, of course, can describe it much better than I can. And she can tell about her book. Her book is entitled Newark Minutemen. And it's also going to be made into a movie in a few years. Um, But that's enough description from me. I will let you listen to Leslie and I talk about all of this in our interview. So, Leslie, thank you for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you, Allison, for having me. I'm really excited to be talking on a a history channel.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Your novel, Newark Minutemen, released last fall. Can you tell us about this book?
1: Sure. Um, Yes, Newark Minutemen just came out, and it's actually in development to be a movie as well. And it's based on my own uh, family story. So it's based on a true story that actually my mom, who is now 95, helped me research. Wow. And yeah, and it's a mixture of action. And so on one hand, you have all this violence and unrest going on and drama. Uh, there's a love story involved with a romance mm-hmm. and The Love Story is a a star-crossed love story that's, of course, doomed for failure. And um, the setting is in Newark, New Jersey in the 1930s. And it's set across this uh, little-known historical backdrop of what was the rising German-American Nazi party in our country during the Great Depression at a time when we were incredibly ripped apart. Mm Mm-hmm. I
0: actually had no idea. I mean, I hadn't studied this period in history very much, and especially in the U.S. So I did not know about this Nazi party in the U.S. Um, I guess they called it like a shadow Nazi party. Is that right?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, some people called it the the third column. Some people called it a shadow party. And um, I actually knew I had something when I forced my 18 year old high school son to read the first draft of the screenplay. And he said, mom, this is really great. And I said, well, why? And he said, because we didn't never learned about this in school. And you know, I had never learned about it. And I'm like, this is a lost part of our our story. And um, what I really believe is that um, at least this backdrop in the story offers this perspective, this dramatic perspective of one of the biggest untold stories leading up to World War II. And I, along the way, I discovered this sort of portrait of America in the 1930s that revealed some of our responses to fascism. It was all about this setting that was the Great Depression of the 1930s, that's mm-hmm. something that's so hard for you and I to relate to. Yes. And it was just this fertile ground for alternatives to democracy. Mm-hmm. And what you had going on was this sort of triple threat. You had the Great Depression, you had these aggressive dictators, and you had our divided country. And so everyone was looking for these alternatives to hopelessness and that's when you had the fascist party on one side taking hold and the communist party on the other and i'm talking about in america mm-hmm. and then and then what what you said the word shadow is is really interesting because in that hole there's the shadow party that we're not paying attention to that's filling up this great divide
0: mm. Wow, so interesting um it's really it's a fascinating story i I was only able to read the beginning, and in the preface you you talk about kind of how where the story idea came from. so you touched on that when you explained the book, but can you tell us more about how this whole idea came became a book idea for you
1: sure so um um uh, my mom I mentioned uh, she's ninety five now yes. Yeah. And growing strong, by the way. Oh, that's Um, wonderful. Yeah. And uh, so at her 90th birthday, which was five years ago, Mm -hmm. um, we, my sisters and I got everybody together. Our goal was to get 90 people at her, at her birthday reunion. And we got all these people back together and she grew up in Newark, New Jersey Um, she was the daughter of immigrants. She had four brothers. She grew up with all the cousins around. And they started talking about, of course, all the stories. Um, figure she was born in 1925, so they lived through the depression, they lived through the war, and by the way, they lived through like three major pandemics. And they started Yeah, and they started telling these stories. And we had heard a lot of them growing up, but you know, as kids, you don't really pay attention to what your parents are talking about. But right. this this one jumped out at us. So we are, always knew about her older brother, our Uncle Harry, that he was a prize-fighting boxer. And he had, we always saw the trophy that he had, and there was a newspaper article. So we always knew he was a, a, a prize-fighting boxer. But the news story that came up when it at this event was all the cousins started talking about, remember when Uncle Harry, your brother Harry, would go out and he'd come home at three o'clock in the morning, and your mom would yell at him because he was out beating up the Nazis <sighs> and i I kind of did a double take, and I said, "What do you mean beating up the Nazis? You mean when he was in the war over in Europe, and they're like, "No, no, right here in in North New Jersey, there were There was a a German-American Bund is what they were called. They um, had a American Fuhrer. His name was Fuhrer Fritz Kuhn. Mm -hmm. And he ran our country and he divided us up into three um, sections, the West, the middle, the East. And they, they actually called us the colony. Germany called us the colony and he created this whole incredible organization um, with all of these cells, thousands of cells across the country or probably hundreds of cells. Um, And he created this whole company that um, was a for-profit company, raised money. And, and I can talk about later, some of the incredible research that I found that um, sort of this, seeding of america that that they were doing, but that's when I found out about the story. My cousin and I became um almost possessed with understanding the story and uh, just started doing research and and it started revealing itself
0: wow i yeah, I can imagine becoming obsessed with finding out about this um I'm just curious, like this Fuhrer, what was his name the Fritz, Fritz Kuhn, Fritz Kuhn. Um, Was he like a Reichsfuhrer under Hitler or did he set himself up as the Fuhrer of the U S?
1: No. So the history of it is, is that way back in the twenties when sort of this Nazi party started forming with Hitler, you Mm -hmm. know, Hitler, if everybody recalls their history, Hitler was arrested, went to jail. And a lot of those Nazi supporters or militia, came to america Mm -hmm. and that's when it there were these groups started forming in america and it didn't really take hold until um 1933 when hitler gained power and um some of those um let's call them um not descendants of disciples Of Hitler. It wasn't an official thing. So yeah, so they sort of of started forming this group here, and it started to become very extreme. So extreme that Germany said, whoa, we have to calm this down. We're getting too much attention in America. And in 1936, that's when Fritz Kuhn was voted to be the leader of this group because of the background he had some of the charisma that he had and some of the ideas he had was, you know, to form this into a corporation. And the other thing that, um, was really brought this, um, the momentum, created the momentum behind this organization, interestingly enough was radio. And whereas before this group was kind of scattered it was because of radio that all of a sudden there could be this unified message of what's happening in America. The right called it socialism, communism. They even called, you know, what Franklin Roosevelt was doing as socialism. And, mm-hmm. um, and some of the other, you know, messages that you can imagine that mirrored what, what uh, Germany was saying. So that was how he officially, uh, got into power in 1936.
0: Hmm. Wow. Um, so the subtitle of your book is a true 1930s legend about one man's mission to save a nation's soul without losing his own. First of all, can you explain what you mean by a true legend?
1: So this story is okay. Well, ask ourselves, why have we never heard this story before? So there's two parts that we haven't heard before. One is this whole backdrop that was going on. The second part is the Nork Minutemen. And to go into it a little bit, who were the Nork Minutemen? Well, they were these Jewish boxers that um, were part of, uh, that were organized by the Jewish mob. And what happened was, is our government, because of First Amendment rights, all this stuff was going on, but our government couldn't do anything. There were rallies going on. There were um, newspapers, propaganda, but freedom of speech, we couldn't do anything about it. So the government went to who has the power in our country at the time. So remember, it's 1930s, 1929, stock market crashes. Everybody loses their money except the mob the Italian Mm -hmm. and the Jewish mob. Well, so the government went to the mob. The mob runs the boxers because of gambling. They Mm -hmm. said, hey, we've got a really organized group here. Um, Let's create this uh, resistance group um, to go out at a minute's notice. We can call up one or 10 or 100 and uh, go out out and, and do what we need to do to fight this Threat that's going on in America, and um, so um, the way the story uh, is set up is you have the Jewish boxer Yell, who's a Nork Minuteman under this under the mob, and um, he is asked to go undercover for the mob in this resistance and to become what was an equivalent of the German SS in America. They were called the OD. And um, he goes undercover, he becomes trained to be sort of the inner circle. And along the way, he falls in love with the daughter of the enemy. Hmm. And so that creates this big conflict of heart over this big conflict of country. And so he's, of course, pulled in a couple different directions, he gets to understand you know, some of her perspective, why now now remember, this is before we know the horrors of what happened. Oh, yeah, in the yeah. 40s, right? So he's kind of listening to her, she's listening to him. And so his heart is pulled in, in two different directions. And so that's where I, I came up with that um, title. And then the legend word is that the part about what goes on with the mob is, was obviously, um, you know, never written down. It's family lore. It's the mob talking about it. So to me, it was sort of a legend. And, you know, is it true? Is it not? Who do you believe? You got to put all the pieces together. And so that's where I came up with that tagline.
0: Right. Nice. Um, And a lot of legends are based in reality. Right. Um, True. Yeah. So this, your protagonist, Yale is his name? Yes. Yeah. Um, And he's a Jewish boxer. And um, is he based on your uncle?
1: So no, actually his sidekick, Harry is based on my uncle. Okay. And and the reason I did that was because I wanted Harry to be sort of the, um, the feet on the ground And I wanted to him him to be sort of the um my my anchor. And Yale is actually based on um there were two brothers a couple years earlier that um they were from Chicago, one was a newsman, one worked for the FBI, they were asked to go undercover for the Chicago Daily Times to um for six months to try to understand really if if the German American bun was a threat to America, and mm. they went under for six months. When they were finished, they wrote in the Chicago Daily Times a 12 page serial about their experiences, which were just shocking. and wow. yeah, and John Metcalf, um, he went on to become one of the key people at the um, congressional group that was put together um, that that went on for years that eventually became the communist group and the McCarthy group and all of that. But it started Mm -hmm. out as the early communist and Nazi group. And what was incredible that happened was as I sort of tripped across that research, um, I was on ancestry. And one of the ways um, as a historical fiction writer that I create my characters is I go create family trees for them so that I can learn about who they are, who their families were, where they lived, what their jobs were, and maybe some of their motivations. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, crea- I created a family tree for the Medcalf brothers. And down in Tiny Little Mice Type was this little footnote that said, John's diaries are archived at the Hoover Institute. And I live out in um, California, and the Hoover Institute is in Stanford. And I said, Mm. okay, that's interesting. Let me go over and see what that's all about. And I became a member of the Hoover Institute and went down into the archives. And um, there were actually 12 boxes of his diaries, first source material that I found that I incorporated into the story, one in particular, is you probably may have not gotten to this part yet because I think it's later, but it's the scene where Yale becomes initiated into the um, to be an OD soldier, and um, he describes the whole initiation rites, and I describe that in the book and and take that son- that scene, and I actually wow. got, got to meet John Metcalf's son who is um, in his 80s now. He lives down in California and got some extra insight there. And so, you know, I was, my heart with this story was to make it as authentic as possible. So that was just an incredible bonus that, you know, it was this whole story was one of these things that were, were meant to be, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's really neat. Uh, Can you, Tell me more about your research process, aside from what you've mentioned already.
1: Sure. So, um, as I said, it started just, you know, talking to my mom and then her cousin who lived right near her. And then um, we, I, I had done, as I said, I was, I'm into ancestry and I had a lot of old letters and and all of that. So the, old, the family and friends was one level. Um, mm-hmm. the, the second level was... um I got to uh to be connected with some of the kids and the grandkids of the mob um Meyer Lansky was the head of the jewish mob and i I've gotten to meet and talk with his grandson um, um, uh, some of the other notables longies Willman was the mob king of of newark and he's he's one of the narrators in my book gotten to talk to his stepson. And um, and then interestingly, um, all of the all of the uh, many, many of the Jews from New York went to a high school called Wequok High School, which Mm is I don't know if you ever saw Plot Against America. Um, That was just on a year ago on uh, Amazon. But um, no, I haven't. That's that's a great story about. So Plot Against America is the dystopian novel. Of if my story had come true, that's what would have happened. Lindbergh mm. becomes president. America turns fascist, and and that sort of thing.
0: That's interesting because I did watch. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the series now because it was an Amazon series. Yeah, um, it was not called "Plot Against America," though. Completely escaping me. Uh, um, uh, but it was like a Nazi America. Oh, in the I, I know.
1: Um, it was. Um, Man in the high castle. Yes. Man in the high castle. Yes. So that's a dystopian too. That's, that's completely dystopian. Yeah. Where Germany wins, Japan wins, splits up the country. Yes. Yes. But, but plot against America is you may be interested in that as well. That is um, Philip Roth is the writer. He grew up in Newark and that's from his perspective. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so the story though, I was going to tell you was, so, Weekwalk High School was where all the Jewish kids went. And there's an alumni association. And my mom is part of that. And so um, it was my cousin actually that wrote the alumni and said, Hey, we're doing the story on the North Minutemen. If anybody um, had any relatives that were North Minutemen, please send us antidotes. And so mm. all these people sent us these antidotes. And so I got to meet more and more and more of the North Minutemen. And some of the daughters, I'm, I'm friends with two of them that post book, they reached out to me and they said, Oh my gosh, you have now brought my father's story to life. And, um, so those were all the firsthand, um, stories that I got that you could never find written down anywhere because that was, you know, the, the dark side of our, our country, the FBI or the government working with our mob and all of that. Mm. Um, then the documented part was about 10 years ago, uh, the FBI unsealed um, some documents that um, like thousands of pages that again, because I was possessed with this story, I actually read them and wow. got an incredible insight. And then of course the diaries that I just mentioned. Uh, oh, and then there was a, another book That was an incredible resource, and it's called, I'm not going to say this right, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like Wonderlocker's Salute. And Wonderlocker's Salute is the Nazi salute. Mm. And this book was written by, in the 1970s, um, a social studies teacher from, I think, New Jersey or Connecticut or something, heard about, so one thing I haven't delved into here is um, the other thing that Fritz Kuhn did very brilliantly for his side was he bought all this real estate and he created 25 Hitler youth camps across America. And, um, a big part of my story takes place at these youth camps as well. And the heroine is based on one of the girls who was actually raped at the Yap Hank, Long Island, um, a uh, camp called Camp Siegfried, and mm-hmm. um, part of the the story was that this this um, teacher, social studies teacher in the seventies, discovered the story about the Nazi youth camps that were in our country at the time. And and just to give you a flavor, these were kids dressed up in smuggled youth camp uniforms, only speaking German, learning mm-hmm. all of the propaganda learning mm-hmm. to shoot, learning to um, military, uh, um, all of that. When they turned 18, they were signed up to be registered for the German army. These were really with the goal of creating a German youth here, German Nazi right. youth here, I should say. There were plenty of good Germans here, I, 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 right. I, I want to yes. add, right? But, but anyway, what he did was he became so fascinated with this that he quit his job and went around the country speaking to these adult children about their experiences in these camps. Mm -hmm. And I came across this book. It was out of print. I ordered it and, you know, I paid big bucks to get it, but I said, this is really interesting. And I got it. And interestingly enough, I opened it up and these pages, these papers fell out of it and they were letters from some of these kids,
0: oh and my
1: goodness, yeah, there weren't a lot of them. There, I, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but right. it was yet an interesting validation to me of what had happened, and for me to create this authentic story. That yes, I changed it into this love story that um, was meant to be a movie and a Titanic-like love story, so that everyone would be enamored by it. But my real goal was to make it as authentic as possible.
0: Yes. Wow. I love it. Thank you. Can you tell me, how did you, as you were writing this, how did you decide what to fictionalize and what, what to keep close to what actually happened?
1: Great question. And so remember the, where I started this was I started it as a movie I originally wrote it as a screenplay, right?
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that. I was going to ask going to clarify that and I forgot to. Um...
1: Yeah, no, that's that's fine. And so what I did actually, the process was um I worked with a friend of mine and I came up with this um sort of five-page treatment of this story. And she said, Leslie, this is really great, but what you need to do is we need an, an intellectual property. Write a screenplay. And I said, Sure, okay. I've never written a screenplay before, but I can look it up on the internet. <laughs> and I I literally looked up Titanic as my screenplay. My favorite love stories are star-crossed love stories where, mm-hmm. you know, it's the Romeo and Juliet. Yes. and and triangle love stories where there's, you know, somebody falls in love and of course one of them's in love with somebody else and right. that whole tension. So I said, "Okay, that's the movie." that I want to create because I want it to be, um, that feeling that epic. And, and so that people really are drawn to it and younger people are drawn to it. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm actually speaking at the Holocaust Museum, LA this Thursday, the Holocaust Museum usually only does uh, nonfiction, real stories and, But one of the reasons that they and and other Jewish organizations are really love the story is because we all know that, you know, the last of our Holocaust survivors are are passing away and Mm -hmm. who is going to continue the story and how do we make sure that the younger generation um, remembers it and believes Mm -hmm. it and as they say, never lets it happen again and one of the reasons I got so much attention from the the movie business was because this was a younger audience and this is a way to reach a younger audience. And um so I loved that. I, I loved that about the way it was moving. And uh um so I think your question was, how did I um decide to make it um or which parts to make uh fictionalized and non yes or how to, yeah. So I thought, okay, if I create, can create this love story, but base everybody else on, on true. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I, uh, I felt I could make a compelling story that, that, that a lot of people would, would be drawn to um, the other big decision I made. And uh, a lot of, a lot of people told me not to do this, but um, I, I, I wanted to um, create uh, a story that had empathy. And so I, the way the story is written is in a form of four narrators. And um, given that it was my first published novel, some people warned me that that was going to be very challenging. And it was very challenging. <laughs> and there's probably things I would do differently now. But, um, but so the four narrators are, I think you got a little taste of it are the, the, the hero and heroine, Yale and Krista, Mm -hmm. and then the, the, you know, the Fuhrer, Fritz Kuhn, and also the mob king, Lange's Willman. Okay. And the reason I did that was because, you know, like one of the questions you ask is, okay, who are the bad guys here and who are the good guys? I mean, we know the punchline, so we can you and I can say, well, of course, this guy was the bad guy. But back then, you know, you, okay, fine, I, you can't put yourselves in people's shoes who can't put food on their children's table. Maybe they were right. on the right track, and so, they couldn't they couldn't see the future.
0: Like we're looking at it, yeah. knowing what happened in the nineteen forties and exactly um, what Nazi Germany eventually did. Whereas there, it was the beginning. They had no idea what they were capable of.
1: Right. So what I wanted to try to do was to give both, both sides. These, the the mob was bad, the bad guys and, and, and German Nazis were bad guys. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to give the good and bad of both sides. And I wanted, um, I wanted to help, the reader connect to the character by understanding both sides, their kindness, their wickedness, their mistakes, and um, and and even give the villains a little empathy. Like, okay, maybe they do have a good point. Um, so, um, I created this four person first first person. So four narrators, um, are the ones that, that, that tell the story. And through these four characters eyes, I wanted you as the reader to be able to examine why America closed our eyes to this satellite that Hitler was building in America for his Nazi empire. Mm-hmm. Cause I want, I, I didn't want you to just say, Oh gosh, how, how, how naive they were. I wanted you to see both sides. So, right. um, so that was the approach to, uh, to telling the story.
0: Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about your career. I, do you work in the movie industry? Is that how you came up with, up with this writing this as, I mean, you explained why you decided to write it as a, um, screenplay. Um, but how did it go from like screenplay to book? Sure. And how did all that happen for you?
1: Sure. So um, I do come from the entertainment business. I mm-hmm. worked um, for the toy companies, the video companies, and then Turner Broadcasting. Um, in my my most recent years, I've just finished raising four kids. Mm. But um, my husband, um, he comes from the TV business. He owns a small film company. And um, I've been exposed to a lot of screenplays. He always asks our family to read the screenplays or we get sent screenplays. And so it's just more of the the people I'm with. And and like if if we were bakers, I would probably be a baker. So right. it's it's my <laughs> it's my it's my environment. And in in fact, when I decided to go to the book, so I ended up selling the movie and it was all just great timing and part actually some naivete, I I called certain people and people were like, I can't believe you called them. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't supposed to call them. And so I was naive <laughs> enough but experienced enough to get in some doors. And um the timing was just so right. And um that so I sold it and uh, to a group called Full Will 73 and they're these um four uh the founders are these four guys from the UK and their fifth partner is James Corden. Um, mm. And so that's the uh, from the late late show, mm-hmm. and they sort of have this hot, hot little well, not little. They, they are sort of they're sort of hot in the in the film and TV business right now. So I sold that, and then what I realized was, as writers and directors and producers started getting involved, that this was not going to be my family legacy story anymore. And also, my mom was asking me every day when the movie's going to be out. And I'm like, mom, this, this takes a while. And then the pandemic's coming. But um, so what I decided to do was I, I had the story. I kept the book rights. I wrote the book. And I said, I'm going to give myself to the end of, it was 2019, to sell the book to a publisher. And if I don't, I was going to just independently publish it just to have it as a family story. Mm-hmm. And I ended up being able to sell it to Morgan James Publishing And, um, it was nice because, uh, they let you keep the intellectual property. So I didn't have to worry about a big publisher wanting the movie rights and dealing with that. And, and then they promised they would have it out by the end of the year 2020 and, um, boom, what happened in February, 2020, we all know that story. And so they called me and said, Hey, listen, instead of releasing this in December, would you like to at least release the ebook in April? And I said, because everybody of the shut-in, the ebook business was taking off. And I said, sure, right. why not? And I, um, I had three weeks, and I'd never launched a book before, and there were no bookstores, and I didn't know what to do. And so my daughter, who actually Brittany Berry, who belongs to, uh, she she's at um, a school, Cal State Northridge. She belongs to a Jewish sorority and a Hillel. And she Mm -hmm. called me and she said, what are you going to do about your launch? And I said, I had no idea. She goes, well, why don't I get my sorority together and we can do a Zoom launch? And I said, huh, what's, what's Zoom? I had, you know, this was back in March of last year. And so she was able to, on launch day, we did this Zoom event. It was incredible. And it gave me the experience then to go out to different groups that I knew would have some interest. And I knew like the, the JCCs people in the Newark library. And so I was able to get a good start. And then um, and then the paperback um, then didn't come out till the fall, but that came out a little bit early, but I already had this sort of groundswell of following and press.
0: That's wonderful. That really worked out. When can we expect to see the movie? I don't want to be like your mom asking every day, but
1: when, when will the pandemic be over? Tell me that. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I I thought they were starting
0: to film things again.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, they, we are, they are. And so, um, so it it was actually, um, there's, there's a news article in Variety that, that um, sort of says, uh, well, that came out in October And that announces that we do have our writers and, um, you know, in development, we were, um, without saying it, I will, I will hint to it. Um, we are on the cusp of hopefully getting a really, really great director, um, to help. But, um, you know, realistically with all of the breaks on, and even with my mom's pressure saying, guys, I'm 95, um, you know, uh, uh, where are we? It's 2021. Would it be a miracle to have, probably 2023, right? Yeah, because and, so many things got pushed out a year as it oh, is. I know. Yes, yeah. Um,
0: yeah. It, and is it expected to be like in theaters? Does oh, that? definitely.
1: Okay, in fact, well, gosh, um, it's, the world is changing, right? Yes. And, and whereas before, because of different academy r- rules and stuff. You you couldn't go right to Netflix before movies, but a lot of that's changing. So who right. knows? But the today the idea is this will be a feature film um, versus a limited series or a, a, a weekly series because of the story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not so much based around characters. Not that we couldn't have a spin-off where the North Minutemen go out and beat up people every week or whatever, but it is, it is more of a movie story at this point.
0: Okay. Um, and has your mother read the book?
1: She read the book. Oh my gosh. She's read, (laughs) she's read it. She's handed out to everybody at leisure world and we even got her. So she lives in a, in Maryland, uh, in a community called leisure world, independent Mm -hmm. living, and we were even, we even got her in the Leisure World. They wrote up about her in the Leisure World newspaper. So she's sort of a celebrity over there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but I will add one thing. It was really interesting. While I was um, writing the book, it's it's really hard. I don't know if you've ever written a book. Are you an author? Yes, too? yes yeah. I am. To, so it's so hard to get people to read your drafts. But she was my my stalwart. She would always read my drafts and give me such incredible feedback, good and bad and I don't understand this. But um I I let's see. I, I'm going to try to do this without giving anything away, but there's somebody that needs to be killed and I said and and it it has to do with revenge mm-hmm. and I was going through it and and I said, "Mom, um do you think I should kill this guy?" Absolutely. I was like, "Oh my gosh, okay." So she would give me like this Really, like direct feedback, and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and she grew up in the thirties. Remember, different time than now. Yes, and uh, but anyway, yes. She she, I mean, I talked to her every day for two years, getting the story from her. She read the drafts. She mm. read the book. She she criticized the book. She she triumphed the book. She's told all her friends about the book. So yes, thank you for asking that.
0: Oh yeah, that's great. Um, and this is, seems like it's a whole family endeavor because your daughter also wrote a song based on this book. So is this the same daughter who did the zoom?
1: No, no. So I have four, yeah, I have four kids, um, an older son, the two girls and a younger son. And, um, yes. So my, so yes, one daughter helped me launch it. And in fact, designed the cover. Oh, really? She did. I mean, we had a professional do it. But she was the one, Brittany was the one who designed the cover, which um, is, I just think, incredible. And, um, and then Shea, who's, uh, mm. she's a student at, at Berkeley. Um, during this shut-in in 2020, she wrote this incredible song and put her heart and soul into it. And yes. we just launched it two days ago. And it will be part of the audiobook book um, mm. as, as the theme to the audiobook.
0: That's great. Um, do you think they will use it in the film?
1: I hope so. I hope so.
0: The quality of the song is amazing. So I will definitely, I will include at least a clip here. Thank in the, you. Thank in you. The yeah. Final
1: yeah. Thank you so much. No, she, uh, everybody loves it. I mean, literally it just launched. So, um, yes, let's help her make it go viral or whatever they say. Right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so yes, my two daughters, um my mom, it's an incredible legacy of the younger generation being connected to my mom and understanding that part of our life and and what was uh, what what we should all remember and and our legacy that's handed down and and so that's that's been incredible so. Um, and, and by the way, it's been a broader family thing too, you know, my cousin helped me research and other cousins have launched it. And so, especially during the shut in, it was, I'm like, how am I going to do this? And they're all like, don't worry, we'll get it out there. And and they introduced me to, you know, different organizations that are very interested in getting this story known and, and part of our our American history and Holocaust history, by the way.
0: Right. Well, that's wonderful. So this is a question I ask all of my guests. So if you've heard any of the episodes, you would have heard this one. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present?
1: Well, I think that when we learn history, like in school or the classic way, we learn, you know, obviously when it happened and where it happened and even why it happened. Mm-hmm. And I think by reading histor you know these kinds of stories through fiction, we learn about who and we learn about what these people were struggling with and what they were celebrating. And I think one of the hardest things to do is remember people's voices and i think characters of historical fiction give us a voice mm-hmm. and i think that's a whole different sense and understanding of our life and what how we should live life today
0: yeah Right, so Leslie, it was good talking with you. Where can listeners find you online? What's the best way for them to follow you? Uh, um,
1: the best place is I do have a website. It's called NewarkMinutemen.com. dot com, and mm-hmm. Newark is is in Newark, New Jersey. Right. Um, so NewarkMinutemen.com. dot com, and I do have both um, uh, all of the talks I've done, but also what people love is I have a lot of the the true history and pictures, and and videos, and even the, some of the recently unrevealed um, FBI videos, home videos of some of the stuff that was going on. So um, that is the best place to go.
0: Okay, wonderful. Thank you for being with
1: us today. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Putting out a light burning in their eyes
0: taking all its breath until there's nothing left inside I... spiders marching through I hear they're coming soon but I never have to fear you're the angel in the room
1: just don't close your the black and blue tonight We're fighting for our
0: love But we're running for a lives Just free, oh At the end we'll see the light we're Well, friends, that was a clip from, life, from the song Fire in Our Hearts by Leslie Berry's daughter, Shea. It's newly released. And to hear the whole thing, please go to my show notes and... I have a link there to the entire song. That's something different for Historical Fiction Unpacked, but it's really beautiful, so don't miss it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Leslie. I am not going to keep you on here too much longer, but I do want to remind you to go and join the Facebook group if you're on Facebook. It's Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. And there's a link to that in my show notes as well. As usual, the show notes can be found at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review it in whatever app you use and make sure you're subscribed so you're getting new downloads every week when I release the show. So friends, I was looking for a quote for this week. And I just could not come up with one that would be appropriate. Um, Mostly because as I'm looking through, I was looking through a lot of quotes from Adolf Hitler and about the German American Bund. And it's so distressing, but at the same time, I'm so grateful that ultimately the Nazis were defeated and that I live in a free country today in spite of all of its faults, of course. So I found a quote about freedom And it's from Nelson Mandela. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. So let's remember that this week, my friends. Thanks for listening and keep reading historical fiction.